Our scripture lesson is uh, slightly extended from what's printed in the bulletin. I'll be reading from Genesis 25, verses 19 through 28. This is uh, the second sermon and passage we've had, and we will have had in a row on Rebekah. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled within her. And she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples born of you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins within her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Isaac was a skill, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, so use the words of this sermon that we may glorify you and lead us even to dare to enjoy you forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Nearly every major biblical character experiences a crisis at some point in which we are following their lives. Noah survives the flood and the ark, but then drinks too much, is violated by one of his sons. Division in the family of nations ensues, a division that is later used in this country to justify the separation of races and the enslavement of one by another. As we saw two Sundays ago, Jacob wrestles with God in the middle of the night and receives a blessing, but he emerges at dawn with a limp that remains with him all his days and by which he is remembered down the centuries among the people of Israel. Ruth and Orpah lose their husbands And their mother-in-law, Naomi, loses her husband and two sons, leaving three women bereft and impoverished, one in a foreign land. 
Experience of crisis among the people of God extends to the philosophical ruminations and the narrative poetry found in the section we call wisdom literature. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who all his life darkly proclaims vanity of vanity, all is vanity, is able to say near the end of his life, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Yet he does so only by adding immediately thereafter, before the evil days come. By which he means the days in which aging takes its toll on the human body. And even the female lover in the Song of Songs, whose love and passion energizes the entire poem, faces threat from the daughters of Jerusalem, who seek the attention of the one whom her soul loves. No biblical character of note is immune from crisis. A message to us in and of itself. The Genesis character on whom we are focusing for the second Sunday in a row, Rebecca, faces a crisis when we join her today. It comes in her marriage to Isaac, into which, as we saw last week, she has entered with energy, hope, beauty, life, and love. Yet when we join Rebecca today, she and Isaac have been married about 20 years, a period during which, like Isaac's parents, Abraham and Sarah, Rebecca and her husband have been unable to conceive a child. Like Sarah before her, Rebecca is barren. Barrenness is more than a personal tragedy for the family into which Rebecca has married. As we have seen, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac's parents, the family purpose is to pass on God's promise of land and descendants for the people of Israel and blessing them to be a blessing for all the nations of the world. As long as Sarah is barren, as long as they cannot have a child, the chain of descendants is threatened. And it will break the promise of God before that promise can be fulfilled. Therefore, as did his father Abraham, Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife. And just as God eventually led Sarah to conceive, so also the Lord grants Isaac's prayer. And his wife, Rebekah, conceives. But while Sarah bore within her womb only Isaac, with Rebekah, twins are conceived. Now, we might expect Rebekah to be enormously excited. And perhaps she is for a while, after she gets over the initial shock of two, not one. But whatever joy and hopefulness Rebekah draws soon turns into challenge and crisis. The narrator says, the children struggled together within her. Prior to their birth, in Rebecca's womb, 
in the most intimate and life-giving part of her body, the children struggled within her. No matter how far we've come in our society in structuring the nine months of pregnancy to be a joint effort between mothers and fathers, no matter how increased has the role become for fathers to be trained in the arts of delivery along with mothers and to be present and active during delivery, it is probably still the case that no male like myself and perhaps no female who has never been pregnant can fully appreciate the movement that occurs within, a, within an expectant mother's womb, the joy, the hope, the excitement, the anticipation, the surprise, the nervousness, the expression of life such movement brings. Likewise, those of us who've never been pregnant can barely imagine the silence, the stillness, the terrifying fear that things aren't right, that life is not developing as it should. What Rebecca experiences is neither the overwhelming joy nor the deep fear but rather struggle, combat, tension within her womb. The children struggled within her. And that experience is so intense. The wait has been so long that it leads Rebecca to genuine despair. If it is to be this way, she says, if it is to be this way, why do I live? Robert Alter, a great translation of the he- translator of the Hebrew language, notes that Rebecca's cry is so intense and desolate that it might even be a broken off sentence, terse, elliptical, unfinished, as if she cannot speak it. Why am I? Aviva Zornberg simply translates, Why I? We said last week that Rebecca is the first person in the Bible to claim for herself anything like what we would call a self-identity. I am Rebecca. Rebecca, I am, she said. We also said that Rebecca is the first person in the Bible about whom it is said that she is loved by another human being, as in Isaac loves Rebecca. With her piercing cry of why I, we come upon another first. Rebecca is the first person in the Bible to question the value of her life, to hint that she may not want it to continue. She will not be the last person in Scripture to ask this question. 
Job will ask it. Jeremiah will ask it. Elijah will ask it. And others will act upon it. Abimelech, Samson, Ahitophel, Saul, his armor brethren, his armor bearer, Zimri, all take their lives on the field of battle rather than give the enemy that pleasure. And after his betrayal of Christ, Judas will act on that question and take his own life. Why am I alive? Why I? In one of my churches, a socially awkward young man started attending worship. It was a small suburban church where nearly everyone was married with children. There were few single young adults like this man was. He had moved to the area a few months earlier to work in a corporate setting near where the church was located. He'd been raised in one of the tight-knit religious communities in Pennsylvania. He was the oldest child and the only child to have gone to college, completed a degree, and left home. He struggled with being away from that community and the family in which he was reared. He found temporary refuge in a work-sponsored weekend of personal exploration and empowerment. But then he had become disenchanted and depressed over the lack of personal power and self-worth he was able to muster. He felt that that weekend program conflicted with his faith. And based on what he said about the program, I don't think he was mistaken. A few weeks later, he came to see me and he told me he was taking a leave of absence and returning home. Several months later, on a Saturday morning, I was at a meeting in my office and the phone rang. A participant in the meeting who happened to be sitting behind my desk answered the phone and looked up at me and said, Do you know the so-and-so family? And I knew immediately what had happened. Why I, he had asked. Why I? When when Rebecca vocalizes these frightening but honest words, the narrator immediately adds, so she went to inquire of the Lord. Please put these two together, one right after another. Why do I live? So she went and inquired of the Lord. Something deep within her has led Rebecca to sense that she can, in fact, express to God her darkest fear her deepest anger, her most desperate desolation, her most acute sense of meaninglessness, even the deepening downward spiral of her depression. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Notice the word so. It is precisely because Rebecca experiences these feelings that she inquires of the Lord. Like Job, like Jeremiah, 
Rebecca is not afraid to express her darkest thoughts to the Lord in the hopes that God will give ear to her expression. The handful of people I have known in my churches who have taken their own lives have all, I think, had such a so moment. They have all in some form gone in some form gone to inquire of the Lord. Perhaps the response from God they received was too unclear to help them. Perhaps it was too shrouded in mystery. Perhaps by the time it came, they were shut off to it. I do not know. But what is apparent from this text is that Rebecca receives a response from God, likely more direct than the responses that we may have received. Two nations are in your womb, God says, fully acknowledging the pain of Rebecca's experience. And two peoples born of you shall be divided. Not trying to hold back or sugarcoat the reality of the situation Rebecca faces. God then continues, one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. In the reign and rule of God, in the reign and rule that God is bringing, in this promise of land, nationhood, and blessing God has given Abraham and Sarah and now Isaac and Rebekah, God reverses the normal state of affairs. In God's reign and rule, no longer does the firstborn take precedence. No longer is primogeniture inviolate. God's reign is a reversal of the way the world is inclined to think about things, to assume things are to be. In God's reign and rule, the elder does serve the younger. As the biblical narrative will play out all the way through and after the life of Christ, this reversal happens first with Rebecca's twins, Jacob and Esau. Then it happens with Joseph and his brothers. Then it happens with the selection of Saul as king. I mean of David as king. And it will happen with Christ. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it will be expressed in parable after parable. The last will be first. And the first will be last. The point is that in terms of her personal life and what Rebecca experiences, she is chosen to give birth to this divine reversal. She is in essence the matriarch of reversal. That is her true purpose in glorifying God and enjoying God forever. As Rebecca's story continues following the birth of her twins, the underlying conflict that so distresses her never goes away. As the boys grow older, the conflict divides her from her husband as Rebecca loves Jacob while Isaac loves Esau. Later in life, when Esau continues to take wives outside the faith, 
Rebecca will ask the question again, why am I alive? But Rebecca never succumbs to the question. She spends the rest of her life mediating the conflict between her two sons without ever backing down from God's call that the elder shall serve the the younger. She will, in fact, coach Jacob into appearing to be Esau so that her aging husband will bless Jacob rather than the expected Esau so that God's promise will pass through the younger Jacob rather than the older Esau. Rebecca not only survives her why I, she also lives into and embodies the role she has, for which she has been chosen by God, even though that role never gets any easier. In the end, when she dies, she remains in the family to which she's been drawn in this beautiful and energetic love and in whose midst she has been the agent of God's reversal. She is buried alongside Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Perhaps as we teach our children about Rebecca, we should tell them that Rebecca was never afraid to ask the hardest questions of God. She was never afraid to take the most personal and painful question she knew to God. She did not fear that that question would offend God or frightened God. So it was precisely at the hardest moment of her life when she most questioned the value of her life and the very meaning of her life that she went to inquire of the Lord. This alone, I think, is why we should remember Rebecca and why we should teach our children about this wonderful woman that God has given us known as Rebecca. Amen.